0: together and organizing everything and I would hand over to her for any other um, additional points um, regarding procedure, etc. Eva.
1: Okay, <laughs> thank you very much for this. Uh, welcome here everything, uh, everybody and I think that the most important uh, point is to have really unform- informal uh, discussion that will be somehow fruitful uh, for you. And uh, I have, uh, or we have with Tillman one, one slide for you and Tillman I hope that you will use it. So I will share it uh, with my screen. Thank
2: you.
0: We have some people, but I can't really understand them. Uh, unmuted. Yeah, please. Um, let me then um, say a f- very few words about, about um, the organization setting here. As most of you will probably know, um, RICAPE is a very ambitious project funded by the EU and the Czech government um, trying to set up a new, large, and distributed research center um, looking at advanced industrial production. Um, and in particular, the aspects of AI and distributed operations. Um, the three partner sites are Prague, Brno, and Saarbrücken in Germany. Um, the partners are Cirque CTU, SETEC uh, of uh, BUT in Brno, and in Saarbrücken at SEMA, and finally DFKI, uh, where Tim Schwartz is uh, from. They're leading um, a group on human robot interaction. Uh, from Prague, we have Thorsten the Sutler um, who is one of the tenure trackers uh, funded by the RiCA project, working in computational vision. Um, they'll both explain a bit um, what their research areas are and explore the overlap between these two areas. Um, and uh, as I said, this is a new format for us uh, trying to engage um, the researchers and students from the partner organizations. And also um, our members from industry um, through um, the uh, collaborations, uh, for example, with the National Competence Centres And in uh, Prague, uh, we've invited quite a number and uh, got um, registrations from quite a number of industrial participants. So everyone should keep in mind that we are covering theory and practice and uh, questions are interesting from all of areas. Um, I would hand over to Tim or Torsten, who's going to start. Tim, anyone want to start? Uh...
3: Sorry. Should I start? Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, uh, good morning, everyone. Also from my side. So yeah, my name is Tim Schwartz. Uh, I'm from Saarbrücken, Germany. I work at uh, DFGI uh, in the department of, which we call cognitive uh, assistance. It's led by Antonio Krüger, who's also the CEO of uh, DFGI. And as Tillman said, um, so I'm the team leader for the uh, human robot communications group, um, so, what we are dealing with is how can or in general, how can robots and humans work together in a team? And there, of course, communication uh, is, a, is a part of that. And that communication can be very different from human communication. So it's not all about language. Um, it's also about augmented reality and virtual reality uh, different input modalities like gestures uh, and so on. And uh, we have a lab at SEMA, also here in Saarbrücken, uh, where we have a number of robots that we are experimenting with. And uh, as I always like to say, we are not hardcore robotic guys. So there are others, especially at DFGI, also, our colleagues. Bremen Bremen, (laughs) have uh, the Robotic Innovation Center, or RIC for short. They are also developing their own robots, and they are much more what I call hardcore uh, robotic guys, while in our lab we just use standard robots that we can buy off the shelf, Mm -hmm, and then we try what what we can do with them. Uh, A lot of the times we get help from our colleagues from Zima, they know much more about industrial robotics than we do Um, and as i said we like to focus more on the communication parts um, and also on how to bring all these different robots together um, so they that they can act as a team Uh, i think that's enough maybe already too much for an introduction so i would
4: hand over to Tarsten. Good morning, uh, my name is Torsten Sattler, I am on a tenure track here at uh, Church, ctu and I joined CDU ctu uh, in July this year, before I was at uh, Trans University of Technology. I'm tra- uh, like, traditionally I have been working on 3D computer vision um, and more recently I have become uh, interested in this intersection between 3D computer vision and machine learning with the goal of under, uh, helping machines understand about the 3D structure of the scene around them and understanding uh, the scene and particularly the affordances that the scene uh, offers to, to robots and, and other machines. Um, so the end goal is to, to make robots aware of their surroundings and how they can interact with that uh, surround. Uh. So that's hopefully a short enough introduction, Um, so what I, uh, Tim and I hope is that uh, we will have a discussion among all participants, not just Tim and me uh, talking here. Uh, We have prepared a couple of talking points to start with, uh, but if anyone has a question or if anyone has a topic that uh, he or she likes to discuss, please, please go ahead uh i mute yourself or or write something in the chat
3: so yeah should we start with uh with the first one so yep. uh, you said and i uh i said that's a very good question directly for the beginning uh yeah what does does ai for robotics actually mean uh you said or what are the goals for uh, ai in robotics. And I think, yeah, of course, nowadays, AI, uh, it suddenly (laughs) became a huge topic. So I'm in AI research since 2004. And in the beginning, when we were on fairs, or had uh, contact with the, with the public, let's say, most of the time I had to defend AI people were saying, AI, that's bullshit that's nothing real, and so on. And in the last few days, uh, days, years, (laughs) it changed drastically. Uh, And now I have uh, to defend AI in in the sense, uh, and and tell people, yeah, you don't have to be afraid. (laughs) They're not planning to take over the world and so on. But um, what I find interesting, So AI as as a topic is is, uh, 60 years old or 70 years old, depending where you look at it, the American side or the German side is younger. And there were systems already in the beginning or at least in the 60s and 70s that were dealing with robots, of course, for example, there was a system called ShridLoo, where uh the idea was people could talk to robots (laughs) and and give them commands uh, like put up the the red block uh, take the red block put it on the green block and so on and when i first heard about this or i read about this i was completely blown away first of all because it was already in the 70s and then I read into it, and, and I realized, oh, uh, wait a minute, that wasn't the real robot. Uh, the robot part was simulated, also speaking meant typing in on the keyboard. Nonetheless, that, that was a really interesting and, and, and great system. But I think what we are dealing with now is now that we have the robots and we have the the cameras. and have the computer vision parts now we can actually go and really do things like this with a real robot and then suddenly uh, at least I realize uh, okay there's a lot to do still first of all uh, typing in a command is different from speaking you wouldn't type something like the uh, green box no I mean the red box and put it to the side and also with computer vision so and, and you know more about this um, we also thought oh yeah now we have these great systems like dope uh, and so on object detection object pose detection now we can finally solve uh, the pick and place tasks for robots and then we realized that it doesn't work so great um, maybe we're doing something wrong <laughs> maybe you have a few ideas about this or, or kind of your
4: historical
3: view on these kind of things
4: um, I'm not sure if I have a histor- historical view um, but it uh, what you said reminds me a bit of uh, like classical definition of tu- of a Turing test. Uh, in the sense of, uh, I think artificial intelligence is a bit of a misnomer in the sense of there's a lot of artificial going on, but not much intelligence. Um, and, uh, but then again, we don't need this, right? So we just need to have uh, a machine that that can operate uh, based on the expectation of a human uh, it doesn't really matter what, um, whether the machine understands, uh, like truly understands things as long as can, it can operate. Um, so in terms of computer vision, there has been this big breakthrough based on machine learning, uh, which started in like 2014, uh, to uh, to be widely adopted in 2014. Um, of course, uh, deep, the deep learning techniques that power that are much older from Uh, the 80s and before. But um, there was this one paper that showed that deep learning with lots of data and uh, GPUs to make it efficient is actually feasible. That was I think only in 2012. Uh, Then it still took a few years for the computer vision community to adapt uh, adapt machine learning techniques. Nowadays most of the things are based on and has enabled us to, to make significant progress. But as Tim said, uh, there's still a large difference between performance on academic benchmarks, and performance in the real world. So there's, there's a non trivial problem, getting uh, those neural networks to work on everyday problems, as opposed to the the scientific benchmarks that they were find uh, that they were tuned for. Um, And I think this is partially a problem of the incentives that we as academics have. So our incentive is publish uh, papers, because that's how we are widely judged. Um, And publishing papers nowadays is often easier if you have good numbers on public benchmarks. So you're interested in developing or you're encouraged to develop solutions that work well on a set of example tasks. But um, generalization to the real world is if you can show it, that's nice for you. But it's not necessarily something that uh, that people will ask for if you don't have it in publication. And I think this is also something that I hope to get out of uh, this meeting a bit is to see um, how far we actually are from making things work in real life uh, and this is I think something where the industry can help academia like a lot in terms of um, presenting us with with real world use cases um, because otherwise we're going to make up some use cases and whether how realistic those are is then questionable yeah I- I- exactly. Uh,
3: and, and I think that plays into the question that I see in the chat here, so, so Robert asks, what are the typical human-robot collaboration tasks you consider or have encountered in your research and development practice? Uh, so probably that's a question for me because of the sometimes a little bit playful in in our lab just trying out what what's possible what 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 can we do what hardware is available what uh, software systems are available um and often then we talk to uh, to companies you know or we show them what we did and sometimes they say yeah well but that's not really a problem for us um and we had to learn so we had had a large project called hybrid um, that was dealing with how to use uh, teams of robots and, and humans uh, in production and we did it together with Volkswagen and Airbus and uh, a smaller German company called Brötje. and in the beginning we had to learn of course that especially with uh, car manufacturing, there isn't much room um, for for people to do something different. Everything is pre-planned, more or less. Uh, and also, the, uh, the companies, most of them, they thought in full automation, which is absolutely not what we are interested in. And I also, I see it very critical also from a, a social point of view. But um, yeah, so we had these kinds of uh, discussions um, with Volkswagen and uh, Airbus. Um, Where could they need these teams? And uh, turned out the best use case came from Brötje because they were very open uh, about these ideas. and, And usually they are building machines help uh, uh, aircraft assembly and uh, so one thing they said what has to be done with aircraft in aircraft is sealing uh, is, is riveting um, the aircraft hulls and and that's a tough job uh, It's usually done well yeah by humans uh, they have a machine for riveting and uh, they have to place that machine onto each rivet And then each time they use it, it gets a big shock uh, through your body. And then uh, they have to to check every seal, uh, if everything's all right, uh, every rivet, if everything's all right, then they have to seal it. And they said, um, yeah, what they can do is build robots that do the riveting and the sealing, Um, sealing is also something that you probably don't want to do as a human, uh, because that sealant stuff is uh, toxic in a way. So you had to stay away from it. And uh, so what we built together with them was a demonstrator where we had two robots, one for riveting, one for sealing, and the riveting robot um, started riveting. so as long as as the, that robot was riveting, uh, the human couldn't work at the same space, obviously. But then, when the robot moved away to a different part of the aircraft hull, uh, we automatically uh, notified the worker um, that he can now check the rivets because this is the part that still you want to have humans um, to do because. Um, let's say if you if you would train a machine uh, to use sensors uh, to do that checking that machine would only see uh, or recognize the faults um, that that uh, that it's trained with but a human worker could also see something different like there is a, a very fine crack in the hall or there's some oil on the floor and then start thinking where's this oil coming from um, maybe there's something wrong and then we'll call somebody else and then uh, once the the human worker was guided through its task with uh, augmented reality classes so he would know which riveted uh, rivets uh, he can check He can use gestures to say yeah it's okay it's not okay and once, he, once he's done and he could freely choose when he was done, so because let's say you have to check 100 rivets, uh, probably after 10 uh, you cannot focus anymore. Uh, and, and so after 10 you could say, uh, yeah, I, I, I take a break. Uh, and then automatically the ceiling robot would just seal uh, those rivets that have been checked by the human. So in the end, the idea was um, to distribute uh, the work between humans and robots, um, to, to give the dangerous or the strainous the, the parts to the robots and uh, to give the important parts to the human, um, while also taking care that the human is not overloaded, uh, cognitively overloaded, for example, um and i think a great way of human robot collaboration is really or let's say sometimes um, people complain that the robots that we're using are too slow but in the end it depends on on what they're doing it's like at home if you have a vacuum robot yeah he needs much longer than you would need to vacuum the floor but the advantage is you don't have to do it yourself, right? So you can go grocery shopping and when you come back, it's done. Um, so yeah, that what I'm trying to say to, to answer that question is, it's not always easy. Um, the the uh, thing is, I think the, the companies sometimes have to open up their minds, try to think in different directions. What can we, how can we restructure our work uh, using new technologies. And as Thorsten said, on the other hand, we have to listen to the companies uh, so that they tell us their actual problems. And then we can also think about how to solve those problems. And we can also show our, let's say, playful stuff to the industry and hope that Somebody might say, oh, well, hmm, that maybe not exactly that kind of way is useful to us, but, uh, the general idea is useful to us. But, uh, yeah, that was, yeah, Thilman? we have Mirko here.
2: need to unmute yourself. Um, wait, let me see if I can. Uh, do that. Sorry. Uh, you expressed some disappointment that after so many years, its uh, the robotics is not what is what was sometimes expected to be at that technological level. And my my suspicion is that it's uh, the these uh, uh, features were not properly integrated in the sense that uh, the robot has its vision. Uh, uh, its movements and, and so on, skills, but everything is developed separately, in the sense that somebody develops a human-like robot, and he, when he wants it to communicate, he just takes some chatbot and puts it in, without any real integration that that this chatbot should be designed to realize that it also has is uh, is some entity which has its body and so on it's a simply standard chatbot yes it's top chatbot but but uh, developed totally independently and the skills as well so an industrial robot needs the skills doesn't need to have a nice body and many other features and there seems to be no, no strong pressure on real integration of the all these parts in top level and cooperating not just put together and this might this is my impression what could be the cause why it doesn't do all which it could
4: yeah i completely agree i think part of this is also an, an engineering problem so if you can comp, uh, like separate all functionalities and work on them separately then that's a much easier problem if they're all tightly integrated, where if someone screws up component A, this also affects component B, and you might not know for quite some time, until you figure out that component A, where you actually see the problem is, is not the fault you but some other component. Um, but yeah, I agree, uh, it would be, it would be more interesting to, to start actually doing joint research on, say, uh, uh, on, on speech, vision and navigation, rather than keeping this separate. And more specifically,
2: uh, the those who in, uh, invented are not integrated. Everybody does his job. So if you are doing computer vision, you are not developing a language for the communication with the robot about it. Some others do it. They do not look at your problems. Yeah, yeah I, I, I totally.
3: Agree. Oh, sorry, please. Uh, I, I totally agree. Um, because also when, when you think about it, um, we as humans, or if you try some introspection, which is always hard, <laughs> but uh, we as humans <coughs> talking and understanding language. So let's say some people have this idea, oh yeah, we have this great uh, uh, speech recognizers now, right? And basically they transform sound waves into written language. Um, But yeah, that's not really speech understanding. And if you think about what goes on in our minds when we hear something, when we hear words and somebody says scissors, then images pop up in our head about scissors. We, we have a visual representation, what are scissors? And, and it's very general. And then maybe some other stuff pops up that's, oh yeah, that's my scissors I have at home. My favorite scissors, let's say. And this is what happened to me as a child uh, when I was playing around with scissors uh, and and all that kind of stuff. So it's also vision is also a part of language understanding. Um, And what we have right now, um, Torsten said it with deep learning is often, yeah, so, so it's still isolated that way so we can use a, a, a deep learning also for uh to do speech recognition or to generate speech but uh what still is missing is that part where all the pictures pop up or something like this um, so i think yeah you're completely right and that's really a challenge um to put to integrate all these things also on a deeper level or on a higher level um, not sure where that level actually should be. Now, I'm not trying
0: to interrupt. I'm just trying to bring in one of the questions that I got in the chat, uh, please use that facility. Um, um, the question is um, sort of taking us away from this observation that I think we all agree on that um, integration of the separate components in these systems uh, is really very important and that it needs to be a very close integration. Um, The question here is specifically about um, machine learning as um, a tool here, but I think it needs to be answered at least in part um, about uh, with uh, its integration into a larger system. The specific question is how to handle the inaccuracy that comes with machine learning um, and particularly in real robot usage. In general and particularly um, regarding the safety aspects because if you have a real robot particular in cooperation with humans uh, safety becomes a very different issue so i I would uh, pose that question to tosten actually uh, to start from uh, what the inaccuracy in computer vision actually is is it bad or is this a completely solved problem and expressed with 0.001 uh, percent of inaccuracy that doesn't matter in practice. Uh, no, it's
4: I don't think it's a soft form. And I'm not even sure that most people are like, it's actually not something that is widely discussed at conferences. Um, I would actually not trust any uncertainty returned by a neural network. Um, because so the problem is that you train networks with a lot of parameters. Uh, on still relatively limited data, um, and the the chances that they completely overfit to their training data set, so they start memorizing what they've seen, um, and that allows them to get great numbers or, uh, on on the data that they've seen, which is the task that they're trained for. Um, so to Maximize uh, the accuracy of detections of certain objects, for example. Um, but because their representation is so specialized to, to the training set, this doesn't generalize. Similarly, if you then try to estimate an uncertainty of the prediction, you might still overfit uh, this uncertainty estimate uh, to your training data set. Uh, There are, of course, engineering solutions such as trying to uh, to run multiple models trained on. On different datasets or trained with different parameters, at the same time, so have an ensemble of, of networks, uh, and then try to to combine those answers. Uh, another option would be to um, not trust a single measurement, but as your robot moves around, you take multiple measurements in the hope that while changing the viewpoint, uh, gets gets the robot into position that that allows the network to actually understand what it's seen. Um, but I mean that that's just trying to mitigate problems, it's not solving problems. Uh, I think generalization away from the training sets to um, to new uh, observations is is a critical task. It to some degree uh, requires the networks to learn uh, abstraction. So on an abstract level understanding what uh, um, what uh, it's seeing and what the main properties are. I think this is far from an unsolved problem. It's not even clear whether uh, the current deep learning methods can do this or whether we need actually some new methods that that are less data hungry in order to get there. Um, And so I think uh, Martin's question from uh, from the chat which is uh, why does a two-year-old need only two cats to recognize nearly all cats while a neural network needs it's uh, ten thousand or hundred thousand I think this is uh, partially due to the fact that the two year old is not only training on cats but the two-year-old for for two years by then have has been observing uh, his or her environment uh, and I think more critically has been crawling through the environment, has been touching things, has been interacting with things, has been trying to push things, things, uh, has bumped into walls, has fell down. There's a lot of uh, external stimulus uh, that has acted as training data, while the neural network is very, very specialized to just do this one job. Um, uh, did you wanted to say something? No, I, I, I completely
3: agree. And, and it kind of fits into what I was saying before that. So our neural network, natural neural networks, uh, yeah, they, they combine everything. They, uh, it's the whole, our whole sensory works into it and over a very, very long time. And if you think about it, so first of all, I'm not sure if a, a two year old really only needs two cats maybe he just needs one (laughs) Uh, maybe he needs more Um, but if you think about the the solution the technical solution when you try to do something like one shot learning so you have only have one picture or uh, is you generate lots of pictures from this one picture and i can imagine that this is not so far very far away from from what too maybe uh also if if you are a two year old or if you're a 20 year old or 40 year old uh, if you see a cat you don't just see one image you see thousands of them uh you see the cat moving uh yourself you are moving so you you, you see the cat from different perspectives um and so yeah uh, uh, to me it's always interesting. So sometimes we come up with uh, technical solutions, like Tawson just said. Sometimes, when you think about it, it's you can kind of get the idea that maybe, yeah, what's going on in our brains maybe isn't that different. Um, but of course, we cannot be sure right now. Yeah,
4: there was a, a second part of to Martin's question, which is, what is the status of AI reasoning over correlation? For example, smoking causes cancer, and uh, co- not cancer causes smoking. Um, and I think this is this is an interesting question, and there are examples where AI has gone horribly wrong. So, uh, there was this example um, of Google's uh, photo capturing software, which started labeling People of color as gorillas, because in its training data set, it has seen uh, monkeys, but it did not see people of color. There's uh, there was also examples where um, people started test using AI to get recommendations whether a criminal was likely to reoffend or not, and there was a huge bias towards people of color. Uh, so this was done in the US, where the largest part of the pop- uh, prison population is actually uh, people of color. Um, and people of color are much more likely to get uh, incarcerated there. So naturally, it picked up on this bias. that There's people of color are much more likely to go to prison. So it assumed that people of color are also much more likely to reoffend. So there's, I'm not saying that neural networks, uh, or current AI techniques can't reason. But in many cases I would assume that correlation is a much easier way to explain what is seen in the training data. So there's often no real incentive to actually really understand what's going on. But as long as you can get some correlation measure, you're you're probably fine for for the training loss that that people uh, that that you're asked to optimize as a neural network. Yeah, exactly. I also think that's, that's a very Im-
3: important uh, question, and uh, I think, so I don't know the backgrounds of everyone in here, obviously, but uh, I sometimes I, I like to have a deeper look, let's say, at other, uh, uh, at, at physics, let's say, um, to see how, how is research done there. And so usually in the uh, um yeah they are no very much better than we do about uh correlation and pseudo correlation and how to deal with it and as Thorsten said for us it's sometimes so it's very easy to, to crunch through data and find some correlations but uh, a natural scientist would never trust Why
4: do they need, need
2: to so know their ESM or not? They
3: usually go outside of the, right? So they have prediction, let's say. They think uh, uh, beforehand there might be a correlation and then they set up uh, an experiment and actually check that correlation or they set up an experiment actually to show uh, that, or it's designed to show that the correlation does not exist and then if it's existing it's a much better evidence that there really is a correlation as opposed to going through data that you already have and just check if there are any correlations because you will always find a correlation uh, even if it's random uh, uh, random data uh, and then a random correlation but it's also interesting because we as humans kind of do this as well Uh, so we see pictures in stars or in in clouds and stuff like that. And um, yeah, so I think that there's the two levels, the the, the unconscious level and I think uh, neural networks, technical neural networks kind of represent this unconscious level and then there's the higher level, cognitive level where you use logics and all of, of that stuff Mm -hmm. and it's also one Mm -hmm. part of AI now to combine this and and this logic part of AI it's actually very old that was the way we used to do AI for most of the time and then the networks took over let's say suddenly it worked everything it worked that uh, we couldn't do with logics and so on but now is the time to bring it
2: back together again We've reached 9.30, which
0: was the 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 scheduled end for the discussion, but Tim has already begun answering uh, the second-to-last question in the chat, which I think uh, does uh, uh, warrant um, a short answer by both of you, which is exactly about this connection of uh, low-level to high-level views um, and connecting human-robot interaction, human-machine interaction, to planning, scheduling, um, and then also execution. Um, Does that... uh, actually address this interface, or is this something that can be done low-level completely?
3: Um, so yeah, now I, uh, was it, the question from Jan? From Jan, yes. yes. Connecting HRI and, uh, to plan schedule and execution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, that was. So in, in, in hybrid, that was one of things I wanted to do actually um, and we're still on it so the project is over uh, we did something in that direction but I wasn't satisfied with it. we're still on it um, so we had a planner in, uh, involved um, but it's again the same the same problem that we were discussing at the very beginning. So um, the planning, there was a planner, an action planner um, and I kind of had to push people to really show what the advantage of such a planner is. Uh, in, uh, and, and that means there has to be something where the planner has to replan, plan um, because something went wrong, for example. And, and somehow I didn't get through. Um, I don't know why to the people who were doing the planning. Uh, in the end, the robot always came up with the same plan, most of the time, which is really a sad uh, thing. But I think so. One of the challenges really is um, world knowledge, of course. So I'm not a planner, but that's how far I understand it. So you. Yeah. You need to have a, a representation of the current state of the world and you, you need the representation of your gold state uh, and the world changes constantly and um, yeah it's kind kind of hard um, to get all the information that is needed for the planning task into this representation and then I, I would say as humans, we also, we don't know everything about the world, we just assume things, start planning, then we start executing our plan, and if we re- realize it doesn't work, then we we re- replan based on the new information that we got. But um, yeah, this was one part where, where, where I would say digital twins are actually going into that direction. And for a lot of people, digital twins are just the graphical re- representation of something, which is not really true, can be completely ungraphic, let's say, um, but it should contain as much information as possible about something, and that's a very uh, crucial part into integrating planning in, into
4: such systems, I would say. uh, On a side note, uh, this uh, links back to something that we discussed earlier, which was integration of multiple components. There is some interesting work uh, going on in both robotics and computer vision on uh, using simulators to actually train, for example, uh, a visual representation that's suitable for navigation uh, or path planning or visual question answering. the, it's done in simulation in the sense of that you, you want the, the robot or embodied agent to be actually to be able to not only passively ingest data, but actually also um, be able to, to take actions, for example, move a bit uh, towards goal or move a bit to un, uh, get a better grasp of what the, the robot is seeing. Uh, but this is really in the early stages so simulators have become available in the last one or two years. Uh, and I think there's a lot of things happening in, in this space, but it's still far from, from being applicable to, in, to the real world. Yeah, I think um, that's I a closing statement. Tim,
3: you still have something? Mm-hmm. I just wondered, because I in, in the comments I, I read Judea bar <laughs> of course, uh, so uh, to just Bayesian networks are also a, a slightly older technology in AI and yes, you're right. Uh, they go more into that direction of what what is causing, uh, what is cause and what is effect. And um, there's also works on how to train them automatically. Um, that's a very good point Yeah, Judea Pearl really dealt was dealing with these kind of problems. Yeah.
0: Um, <clears throat> we are quite a bit over time, so I would like to wrap up at this point. There are still a number of unanswered questions in the chat, um, and just as a side note to everyone, feel free to save uh, the chat, that's a functionality of GoToMeeting. Um, we would uh, collect Martin's questions there and send them to Tim and Thorsten and maybe we can answer them in email and see if if that's another discussion uh, maybe for another uh, such session. Um, Before I close, um, Eva, would you like to say something about feedback and um, organizational issues? Okay. First of all, thank
1: you uh, for this morning. Very interesting morning. Uh, we would like to send you uh, some feedback questionnaire uh, today, uh, just to get know uh, some really very uh, easy and simple questions uh, uh, for our future uh, work. And also, if you have some recommendations and tips for uh, for some topics, it would be very helpful. So this is only or uh, last thing that we would like to. Uh, ask for your activity for today and I hope that we will have uh, another opportunity uh, in future. Definitely we will organize these uh, Brain and Breakfast uh, events uh, on a regular uh, uh, matter uh, in, in next month also and we will be happy if you join us again. Thank you very much.
0: Well, then all that remains to be said from my side is also a big thank you to Tim and Thorsten for leading us through this discussion. I think uh, we touched on quite a wide uh, range of topics, There's really interesting points mentioned. Um, thanks to also to the audience for listening and for participating actively. We've had a number of very interesting questions from there, and we hope to um, continue this format and see more of these discussions And I personally like very much this informal setting that it's not a presentation um, but really an opportunity to ask um, about details that are slightly outside of everyone's own uh, topic because I think this was one of the take home messages, um, collaboration between groups um, to get something together uh, that's bigger than each individual group can do is really needed for um, more serious applications. That's. Not a new thought, but always uh, good to see um, that repeated here. So, thanks everyone for a very good morning session here, and we hope to see you again in that format very soon. Bye now.
4: Thank you. you. Have a nice day. Thank you. Bye bye. Many thanks. Bye bye.
1: bye -bye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Bye -bye. Thank you very
4: much. Bye, Bye and thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Bye bye.
1: Hello? Hello? Oh,
2: okay. I'm